Back to the Readings Podcast. My name is Chris Gordon and I help organise some of the events that happen at Readings, but I'm also very interested in talking about books as often as I can. And today I'm with Mari. Mari, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, my name is Mari and I'm a book buyer at Readings Carlton. I've been a bookseller for many, many years. How so many years? Come on, share, share, oh, share. Okay, uh, since maybe 2004, so I guess about 13 years I've been a bookseller in different places um, and a book buyer in different places and now I do both. I bring the books in and I send them out again. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about reading non-fictions over January. It's the type of thing that I'm imagining that you could grab your bag with your towel, your sunscreen and head off to the pool or the beach with a book in your tote and it's not going to be fiction. It's the type of read that you could learn something from, that you want to explore another world with. I know that you are a big fan of the non-fiction. Absolutely. And always during break times when I have time to sit and read. It's very much that. It's that chance to kind of get out of your own world, which people find in fiction. I find in fiction too. But in non-fiction, you can find a concreteness to it. Yeah. Go to a really specific place. I also find it's a great way to read when you're surrounded by people, as many of us are when we have a break. That's right. That's because right. you can dip in and out quite often. You can share it with people. You can bore them to death with every <laughs> anecdote that you've read. I do that a lot. It's fun. Um, and there's always something new. And I think there's been such a move in the last few years towards narrative nonfiction yeah. that it actually fulfills a lot of the things we've often wanted from novels. You know, people come in and they want a novel that's a great read. They want a plot. They want something that gets them out of their own head. They want something about the world, something fun. And many, many, many novels do that. But also so much nonfiction does that. And I think it's good to move it kind of – I like to champion it and sort of explain it's not dry, that it has all of that sort of vigour of narrative. I agree absolutely with you, Murray. What's been your favourite nonfiction of the year? Oh, that's a hard one. One that I really loved, which was quite a slow burn, was Understory by oh. Inga Simpson, which is a memoir. Uh, Inga Simpson's an Australian uh, author, novelist. She's written three previous novels, all of which in some way involve the landscape and the bush. And trees. And trees. She, 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 loves, trees. she loves a tree. And Understory is kind of the story of... Almost of, as the writer as tree of the. She's know. pretending that she's a tree. No, no, no. But she's like a nature writer situates themselves in a landscape, and they start all the way from the top of the tree. Which, how does she put it? It's beautiful the way she says, "I see the world through trees. Every window and doorway frames trunks, limbs, and leaves." So yeah. she's such a lyrical writer, and it's the story of her move to the hinterland of the Sunshine Coast to kind of live her dream to be a nature writer in nature, to be an author who can concentrate on writing. So and she surrounds herself with she lushness. She surrounds herself with lushness. The prose is lush, as you can see just from that first little opening sentence of the book. 
But it's actually, I find, it's all the little bits and pieces, the way things go wrong, the strain on relationships, all of the little bits that just form the everyday life while you're trying to live your imagined life, which really resonated for me. And I think it's such a beautiful story to read when you've got time to sit down away from things. I read it looking at some trees. I then thought I'd be really good at identifying trees. That didn't really work out. But, you know, I appreciated being with them. There's quite a movement towards uh, understanding nature in a in a different way to the past. Don't mm. you find in sort of the books that have come out in the last 12 to 18 months, yeah. there seems to be uh, a need, that they seem to be filling some sort of need for us to understand our wildlife, our native heritage. Well, I think that there's the sense that it might be disappearing, which yeah. is very difficult. And I think it's also the sense that the world feels like it's changing very quickly and potentially not for the better. I think no one would say that it feels like it's for the better at the moment. And nature writing is somehow not out of time, but larger than time. Yeah, It's always still there. Hopefully it's always still there and you can jump away and you can, you know, think about trees and the way they intersect with the world. So it's not it's not denying the world, but it's trying to see the world in a larger environment. I think that's what nature writing might be bringing to people in the last 12 to 18 months. I agree with you, actually. Also, it makes you stop, doesn't it? It makes you mm. contemplate. Yeah. Definitely makes you contemplate. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of, well, for instance, I, I tend to read a lot of history. That's what all of that does. It yeah. makes you contemplate. It gives you just a slight step back from each moment to kind of think of a lot of moments together. Yeah. So I always find the history book so fascinating to read because there's such, you know, in the end there's no such thing as history certainly in the sense that everybody's truth is different. So to record the past is so subjective. Oh, absolutely. So there's so many voices that come into it. I mean, the winner of the 2015 Nobel Prize for Literature, now I'm very bad with her name, but it's Svetlana Aleksevich who wrote Secondhand Time. She's a Russian, well, Belarusian Russian writer who was awarded the prize for her polyphonic um, writing of you the past. You need to explain that so much So the more. many voices. So she's written a number of oral histories and the first one of hers has actually just been reprinted in, well, and printed in English for the first time because it's been translated by the great translators of Russian literature, Richard Purveyor and Larissa, surname I can't remember, that's terrible of me, but it's I will. It's really not. But I'm very impressed They've so done far. the most recent translations and of Tolstoy and of ah. some Dostoevsky. And what they've turned to about is they... About their lives? About these authors' No, no, lives? no, of their books, of War oh, and Peace oh. and Anna Karenina. And they've now turned to translating this book, which is called The Unwomanly Face of War, which was Svetlana's first book, which was written between 78 and 83. And it was an oral history of Soviet women in the Second World War. Wow. Of whom there were many millions of yeah. Soviet women and they were everything from snipers to ambulance drivers to lab technicians and they never spoke of it. And in fact, war was always spoken of in terms of the men, even by the women. And so what she sought was a way of bringing together all of the voices that explained the world around her. Incredible. So I think that kind of history is just wonderful. So there's so many voices coming in. In fact, history, there's been some great books this year. There's also been... Um, one that I have not yet had a chance to complete, but I'm just loving, 
called Killers of the Flower Moon, which is by <laughs> David Van. Um, that is a sensational it's title. It's a sensational title. And I think it will, you know, it will appeal to a lot of different people. I think it will appeal to anyone who... Um, Liked that series Mindhunter on kind of the birth Ooh, of the I FBI really profiling. Yep. See, I can't read any or watch any of that because it's too violent for me. But this is about the investigation in the 1920s into the killing of a number of the Osage uh, peoples. They're a Native American nation that had been shifted during the movement to reservations onto an area of Oklahoma. But they'd managed to kind of hold off on being incorporated and losing their land. And when they negotiated the um, the, the parceling of their land off, they managed to re- retain the mineral rights for the tribe, not for individual people. And so when it was given to individual people, they might sell it usually to, to white prospectors taking their land. But because they, re- they retained the mineral rights in the tribe itself, you could only inherit them. And then they found oil. Fantastic. At one point, they were the richest people in the world in the 1920s. And then a number of them were murdered. And this is kind of the story of wow. that and of this early world of the FBI and the creation of the FBI and the creation of this kind of large-scale investigation. So, I mean, from a little colonel yeah. that I knew nothing about, I didn't know much about, I didn't know anything really about the Osage people. It just draws you out into like a web of things that you can bring into everything else you're doing. Yeah. I think that's incredible. Yeah. So if you were on the the floor of uh, one of our wonderful reading shops, Mm. who would you recommend that sort of type of book for? I would recommend it probably to maybe a couple of different groups. Yeah. I'd recommend it to anyone who had read Mindhunter or watched Mindhunter or was watching those kind of true crime things or listened to podcasts such as Serial or was it S-Town? S-Town, I love yeah. S-Town as well. None of which I can listen to, all of which I find too traumatic. But I think this really takes the same thing. It takes, from what I understand, a small personal happening and then it grows it out into a larger examination of a society. And the undercurrents of it. So I'd recommend it to anyone who did that. I'd recommend it to anyone who liked histories of America in any form or anyone who liked a crime novel because mm. it mm. reads like a novel. And this move towards a novelised sense of history is, is fascinating. Well, I think that's very interesting because I do think that there is a movement towards uh, this type of narrative Mm. and that actually that it would bring in people that have enjoyed crime writing or true crime makes a lot of sense. Uh, And I often think that, you know, the main sort of readers of, of these sort of crime novels or true crime are people that are incredibly inquisitive about what's going on in life. Yeah. That, and they're the type of people that are at dinner parties talking about what they're reading. And Absolutely, yeah. And I think that inquisitiveness is found in everyone who goes into a bookstore. Yeah, yeah absolutely right. it's also something that you don't always have time for. Mm. You don't always have time to be inquisitive. You're just getting through things. But, you know... When you have a break, which a lot of people do over summer, you have some time to kind of think, ah, oh, that was a thing that interested me. What can I read about it? I mean, a book that I loved, which I feel like brings together that notion, is um, a posthumously uh, um, published book of Oliver Sacks mm. that's just come out, um, which I've been reading 
in that way of dipping in and out called The River of Consciousness. And his, there's a number of essays that he wrote, many of which are in the New York Review of Books, and he'd kind of been working on a couple of others. He was working on a lot of things when he passed away in 2015. And his uh, surviving his surviving partner and friends have brought a lot of them together in this book, The River of Consciousness, which is then dedicated to the editor of the New York Review of Books. Mm. Um, and they just, they run the gamut. Mm. If there's a mind that was inquisitive about everything, it was Oliver Sacks. And, you know, the first... One, I can't remember the name of the essay, but it's uh, about Darwin and plants and it's wonderful. It's about all of the time Darwin spent after the origin of the species where people said he, you know, never wrote another thing and he wrote, I think it was 15 books, I might be wrong on the number, but so many books on plants and he moved his idea of how to work out evolution or how to explain evolution to people. He was in a letter said, you know, people were against learning evolution. It was challenging, but people don't feel that relationship to plants. So they might be open to the idea of seeing how the process works. Quite amazing. And it's just Sachs's excitement over Darwin's excitement over orchids and bumblebees and noticing the stamen on a flower comes through. Quite compelling, I imagine. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's stories about everything in it. There's books on consciousness itself, uh, on neurology, on the split between psychiatry and neuroscience. This um, sounds like a perfect book for people that yeah. are just wanting. Everything. Yeah. Bring it all together. <laughs> he starts with, they start with this sort of talk about all the sex being on this um, TV program. And I've read a review in which one of the authors, the author of the view was in Finland when it happened and turned it on and, you know, a paleontologist and a philosopher and Oliver Sacks and a few other you know, great men, unfortunately it was all great men, mm. were sitting around talking about the accident that is life and the world. And Oliver was just so much more excited than everyone else. He was excited by everything. So that's a wonderful book for just getting back that sense of excitement, yeah, I yeah. think. For exploring. For exploring. I mean, there's so many books on exploring mm. going on. One of the ones that I also really loved was Sagaland, which is Richard Feidler. Of the man with the gift of the gab. The man with the gift of the gab and his friend, mm. Kari Gislason. I think that's right. Yeah. I know the Kari, the Gislason, maybe not so much, but, you know, we try with Icelandic. They met doing a podcast, those two, and became yeah, friends. They did. They mm. became instant friends yeah. in a way, like a meeting of minds in the hallway waiting for an elevator, which they just kept sending down time <laughs> after time after time. And I think for me, that even that moment is such a wonderful moment, the idea that as an adult in yeah. your 30s, 40s, 50, you could meet an amazing friend who you're going to yeah. feel that close to and that sense of instant camaraderie. I love this story of these two blokes travelling so around. Yeah, travelling around Iceland, sort of speaking the sagas, taking photos, talking to people, following a story of Kari's as well about his family and his somewhat contested experience with Iceland. His father was Icelandic, but he wasn't acknowledged um, on at his birth. It was out of wedlock and that's not a thing that Icelanders did at the time. His mother, um, Australian, so he's grown up in two places. But, yeah, just two men on a journey. Which and the, is saga the story of the saga is, in a s- essence, sort of the song lines of the country, if you like. Yes, absolutely. And also of like the greater world understanding of Norse mythology 
Mm. And also it was written in the vernacular. It was one of the only great literatures of Europe that was written in the vernacular, not in Latin. It was written in the language that people spoke. So it's, it's, you know, it's an amazing body of work, 300 years or so of work, and it echoes through today. And that's such a great book to just sort of take away and sit down and sit on an incredibly hot beach with it being 42 <laughs> degrees and just read about being up a mountain in minus five. Yeah, that's right. Like, it's a beautiful looking book as well. It's a gorgeous looking book. Mm. It has some amazing photos. And the funny thing about those photos is that Iceland is very photogenic. Mm. But it also has some photos that it seems everyone takes. I opened it and went, oh, I took a photo just like that when I was there. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's wonderful. It's great if you haven't been to Iceland. It's wonderful if, like me, you have been to Iceland and you spend all your time talking about going back. <laughs> and it's wonderful if you just want to read a story kind of about two blokes having a good time, yeah. wandering around. Having a bit of a yarn. Having that's, a bit of a yarn and talking about like. other yarns. Yeah. yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. It's like eavesdropping. It is like eavesdropping. And it's kind of also like just kind of collapsing that time. We used to tell stories about going off on trips and we still tell stories about going off on trips. Yes, we do. Different types of trips yeah, now. Yeah, slightly different, yeah. yeah. Less Greenland, <laughs> yes, less, that's right. less conquest, but, you know, not that much less. <laughs> not that much less. No. What about all these sort of trend towards books that are uh, written about war, like that we never seem to be able to have enough books that are written about the great battles yeah. that have occurred when men are fighting other men over a silly piece of land. Well, I think it's there's a few things I feel that are always keeping that going. Mm. Some of them are the things that Svetlana talks about in her book about women in yeah. war, yeah. in that war is constant for many people. It is. It's always part of their past. They often don't speak about it themselves. And I think sometimes reading about something you can't speak about can help. Yeah. I mean... Masha Gessen is talking about it in her new book, The Future is History, which has just won the National Book Award for Nonfiction, which is on Putin's Russia or, and the people that were sort of born during the perestroika time, so born in the 80s and then have lived into this new time and kind of the destruction during Stalin's time and even in Putin's time of the idea of social theory and social theoretician. Theoreticians, yeah. however you say that. I think it is. You know, right. psychologists and sociologists and anthropologists and historians, and without the language to speak about what's happening, you lose a sense of what might have happened. And I think what war books give you is that sense of a language around what you may have experienced or you may know have happened. And I think that's a lot of it for a lot of people. But I think this move towards these really interesting different types of war books too, which expand that. So into women's experience of war, which of which there's the unwomanly face of war and some of her other books sort of touch on that. There's also, you know, a lot of tangential books sort of on war coming out quite often. I'm always uh, surprised by how quickly some people can write about terrible incidents that have happened in the world and how quickly it is to be able to translate something terrible into, uh, you know, a, a, a book about well, that experience. I feel like that... That's that. That is what history does for yeah. you. It gives you a framework to immediately try to look at what's happening. I think Tanahisi Coates's book, "We Were Eight Years in Power," which is a collection of essays that he wrote during the Obama years, the years of the Obama administration for the Atlantic, and he's written these kind of really what he calls extended blog posts to sort of preface each year, and he's got a quite extensive introduction and epilogue where he talks about 
the essential racism at the heart of mm. America, mm. of the ideal of America even, the essential racism of that, of the place of people in it. But also he gives sort of a sense of the growth of those eight years and he sees Trump, which is something people are talking about, Donald Trump, he calls him the first white American president, which you say, well, I mean, all of the American presidents have been white except for Barack Obama. And he's like, no, Barack Obama was a black American president. And the existential pain of that for white America led to the first white American president, Donald Trump, who could only have been elected as a white man, who plays on his whiteness, who is who mm. is in no way um, qualified for the job that he does, who has no history of public office, who could only ever be elected if he was a white man and could maybe only come after eight years of a black man as president, which sounds completely and utterly soul-destroying. But what Tanahisi Coates does a lot is he links it to movements of... Um, uh, restoration yeah, after right. the Civil War. He looks at things. He looks at civil he movements. Lo he looks at civil movements, but he also looks at the South. He looks at the Reconstruction era of the South, which is actually where the quote, we were eight years in power, comes from. It was a quote at the end of Reconstruction, as wow. Reconstruction was falling away in the South. Reconstruction was a time when uh, emancipated uh, black Americans who had been slaves were part of the rebuilding sort of driven by the North that had won the Civil War of the Southern states, yeah. a way out of a slave economy, really, because their entire economy was a slave economy. And it's seen as a great failure, but really, I mean, it is a failure. Lots of things failed from it, but also many things were born from it. Yeah. And I think that's what he sees happening now. Like you could read it as very pessimistic, as we all, many of us think of it, but actually it's the flowering of his career his career starts and flourishes in the time of Obama. There's a sense of possibility within that time, yeah. which I think does change things forever in the end. So, I mean, that's just such a beautiful book. I love that one. We were eight years in power. That's Yeah, it just gives you some sense of perspective of those eight years and the sense that, like, we knew they were important even over here in Australia. Yeah, we did. We did. We and and as he points out the effect of American racism is felt by the world because mm. the world has to deal with the election of Donald Trump Yeah, that's and right. the effect that could have on people. So, you know, that, that was one that I just felt like it brought together a very immediate thing and it used the fact that we have so much reportage out there now immediately of things and we so do. many platforms for it, but brought it together with a much larger historical view, which I think kind of is the point of history I mean, one of my favourite books of the last couple of years is called The Art of Time Travel by Tom mm. Griffiths, who's an Australian historian. And he's written a, num he's written a book which is a number of studies of uh, Australian historians in the post-Second World War period. And not all of them would be considered historians generally. Uh, Judith Wright is in there, mm. known for her poetry, I guess, rather than her history. But he tells a beautiful story in that of her experience of an early novel she wrote in the 50s and a history that she wrote in the 80s of the same area of southeast Queensland and its destruction and its relationship and its relationship to pastoralism 
and to Indigenous disenfranchisement and the destruction of itself as a state. Certainly that seems to be something that we're trying desperately as Australians to come to terms with. Absolutely. Is, yeah. Yeah, is what what has happened, yeah. what will continue to happen. Yeah. And how do we make sense of it? How, do we, how do we make sense, sense of our of past and what do we do with it? Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely. And, I mean, even Understory had that. Understory mm. in the story of the tree and Inga Simpson's personal thing, mm. personal kind of revelation was a history of the area, yeah. the change in movement, the change in clearing, land clearing practices, yeah. the work in Indigenous land practices. I mean, in the last couple of years there's been some, a couple of books that have really captured that zeitgeist there's been black emu yeah. by bruce pascoe about Fantastic indigenous book. lamb amazing and just quite extraordinary and always someone wants it there's yeah. always someone who hasn't read it who needs to yeah. read it yeah um this year there's a new one that i haven't had a chance to read yet but i can't wait to read called call of the reed warbler ah uh, by the charles, charles Mas- Mas- yeah, yeah 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 which is also about land management and from a different viewpoint so it seems to me that when we start looking at these sort of books that the Australians are taking some sort of pragmatic approach to learning about our land now, that we're stepping back, we're having a look at the, the past, we're looking at the way that the Indigenous people mm. were successful with Australia for so many years and we're seeing finally, finally, we're seeing what we can do to learn from this practice. Yeah, I think that's definitely happening. And I think what I love about it, though, is that that's actually a deeply political act as well. Yeah, of course, of and course. I think in everyone feels like all these times are fractures. There's so many fractures at the moment. Mm. But this idea that there is a continuing ecology of Australia. Yeah. That those of us who aren't Indigenous don't understand no, but, but could but maybe learn now. We, we, we want to learn. We want to learn. We yeah. want to learn. I mean, yeah. Judith Wright says it in, in her second book, which I didn't know anything about, called The Cry of a cry of a dying land I think it's called Mm. in which she says well maybe now maybe now that it's all gone I think you you actually could learn something yeah yeah you know you can you can look around you could change things the slap needs to happen yeah so Mm. I think you know I mean that's why I always love non-fiction books they feel like they could be they could be world changers yeah that's right they could change culture yeah they could definitely change culture Yeah. yeah so I mean so let me just ask you a few very quick questions okay. now. I'm yeah. going to go, uh, so uh, I want to buy a non-fiction book, uh, the most perfect read for my older brother. He's uh, nearly, f- he's in his 50s. Uh, he's a scientist. He's interested in bike riding and he's also interested in the environment. What's your pick? Look, I would probably say... A couple of things. Mm. I would say Sargaland randomly mm. Mm. because if you're interested in bike riding, you're interested in touring around, you're yeah. interested in going places, and that's a great book of landscape, of movement. I would also say Understory, a great book of the environment and one he probably wouldn't pick up himself. I think you're right, actually. Because it's, in the, it's, it's in the memoir section. It doesn't jump out and say this is a book of, in, in many ways, ecology, a book of the environment, a book of loving the environment. 
All right, so now I want to buy the most perfect nonfiction for my sister-in-law. She's in her 40s. She's incredibly intelligent, very questioning mind. She's a librarian. Uh, she wishes that she could travel the world, but alas, she has a three-year-old, so she cannot. Oh, that's a good one. Travelling the world, librarian. I actually might go to a book that is, you know, a year or so old now, mm. which is The Art of Time Travel, the Tom Griffiths book. Yeah. That starts with him on like a pilgrimage in France and he sits down at, at a um, campfire with these other people. I mean, he's not on a religious pilgrimage, but he's on a, I think, a spiritual pilgrimage. Yeah. And he sits down at a campfire with other walkers and they're French. He's and, doing the Camino or something, is he? Yeah, I, th I can't remember. It's not quite because he's. I think he's in France at the time, mm. but I might be wrong about this detail because it's not the detail that stuck with me. But the detail that stuck with me in this opening of what he's talking about, which goes on to be this story of all of these Australian histories, is he's sitting at a campfire and there's some French um, walkers also sitting there and they start talking, you know, what do you do? I run a laundromat, I do this, I do that. Um, and he says, oh, I'm an historian. Mm. And they're like, wonderful. Oh, what a fantastic job. Who are your favourite French historians? Yeah. And, and he, he said, what lay behind that? The idea not only that he would understand French history because history is universal, but that he would have favourites because he'd read many histories. Mm. The idea that there are many histories and that people want to read them, that they need to know them, that it's how they inform their lives. Going back to walk. our earlier point, there's so many truths. There's so big, many truths. Yeah. That that would be what I'd recommend because as someone who studied history themselves and works with books all the time and loves to travel and doesn't get to very often, that felt like travelling. Okay, so now what about for me? What about me? I'm quite flaky. My, I, uh, I have a concentration span of two, three, four minutes maybe, uh, but I love to read and I need to escape my reality so, so often. What are you going to give to someone Ooh. like me? I would give you River of Consciousness, the Oliver mm. Sacks. Because I am interested in reading this book. There I think are you're varying spot on. lengths. His excitement is there. Yeah. His excitement for the entire world, for grabbing it from pieces from all over. And they're, they're discreet. So even though you have a sense of the theme of, of the River of Consciousness, you can read it in parts. So if you had to come back to it. If I was interrupted by one of my very rude yeah. children. Yeah, absolutely. I and could... if you just wanted to laugh, <laughs> I would reach, read the Stephen Fry mythos, which is his. Oh, I'm going to buy this for yeah, my partner, actually. His idea of Greek mythology, mm. which is great because he, you know, he in some ways compares trousers and chaos. So to find out how trousers are chaos and chaos are tr is trousers, mm. are trousers, um, that's, that's great fun. So I'd recommend both of those, I think. And I know that you're reading several, several books at the moment, Mary, but we need to finish up quite soon. So I want to ask you two very important questions. Right. The first one being, what are you watching? And then the second one being, what are you reading? Let's start with, what are you watching What right am I watching? Now? Oh, that is a tricky one. Is it? What am I watching? We understand that it could be escapism at this it's, point. It is escapism. <laughs> There's it's, no shame in escapism. Is, uh, all of the DC TV shows are fantastic. I am watching Supergirl and Legends of Tomorrow. <laughs> oh, I think that's great. That's marvellous. And also, look, to be honest, I have a, 
I do have a soft spot for weirdly war TV shows. <laughs> so. Because. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm watching one called The Brave about some special ops team. It's great fun. Fantastic. You know. I mean, it's it's terrible, but it's also good fun. Yeah. But yeah, Legends of Tomorrow and Supergirl are the things that I'm watching at the moment. And look, they provide the lightness while being Legends of Tomorrow is time travel. So again, it's kind of history. <laughs> history with superheroes. It's fantastic. And what are you reading? What right am I now? reading? So I read a lot of fiction this year because I was a judge for the Readings Prize. So yeah, that was a treat. in between I did a lot of bits and pieces of nonfiction, which is what we've been talking about. Um, I have just read and intend to go back and reread almost right now what I consider the book of the year. Mm. And that is Winter by Ali Smith. It's the second in a quartet that she's been planning for well, look, more than 20 years. They've sat in the back of her head. Each one will be a season, autumn, winter. Winter's just out. She still has spring and summer to go. And they're books of now. So autumn, which was... Uh, this year actually shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, is set at Brexit. Mm. Winter is set in the European winter last past at Christmas, which is the election of uh, Donald Trump and the continuing Brexit thing. And it is everything that I think that fiction and nonfiction can bring to each other. Oh, that's so I amazing. think it's – what was it that I – Ali Smith said in an interview in the time at the t on the TOL, TLS on their podcast that the word novel means new and the novel has always formally been about what is new and the newness of its form. It's about time and the sequential. And winter, which left me feeling, yes, there oh. is hope for the world. Oh, yes, we need that. There right is now. kindness. Yes, the world has so much to offer us and there's so many things to know about and so many things I don't know about and so many things that could inform me and nourish me in what feels like a fractured time. It takes in Dickens, it takes in Shakespeare, it takes in Barbara Hepworth's sculptures in stone with the holes in the middle. And when asked about why they're in there, she said, because it proves that any material is just a material. Anything can be looked through. It can be looked at from multiple sides. As you said earlier, what history gives us, looking at things from multiple sides. Mm. And I think that I'm just going to read it again. I'm about to read it again. Can you read Winter by itself or do you need to have you read You can autumn? totally read it by itself. Are I mean, the same characters? No, not the same characters. She has aspects of structure in that autumn and winter f share in that there is a family or some members of a family there is a sense of a, a past history and a future. There is the present disruption and there is always a, a Shakespearean element which is mm. coming into each one. Um, so when you say that, do you mean that it's uh, based on one of the great Shakespeare no, plays? No, just that you... it informs it. So in, in winter yeah. it's Cymbeline, which is kind of about the fracture of and the birth of the British nation and I guess what she was dealing with in winter is about the potential destruction of the British nation mm. and, and nations all around the world, how fractured they seem, mm. how hard it is for people to listen to each other. In autumn, it was um, an early uh, pop art person, Pauline oh. Bothy, oh. who or Bothy, I think, who was in the 60s, who collaged and redrew what we knew 
And then guess autumn was about that collaging and redrawing what we know. Um, so there's kind of like, there's always a theme larger than the text itself that runs through her books, but you don't need to read them in order. They all stand alone. Um, and we're interesting in order, but not at all. When important. can we expect the third novel, do you think? Uh, this time next year. One each year. She's wow. getting it done. Amazing. She's doing it each year. That's very tough. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's um she said it's actually I was listening to an interview with her, she said it's actually energizing. Because she also doesn't know. Like there's so much to worry about at the moment. And but so the much of, to hope for. That's so much to hope for. And the act of writing allows her to hope because she works through the ways in which these things may have happened before and they've never quite happened the same way again and therefore they won't happen the same way again in the future. So there's a chance. And reading them is like that. It's like working through the trauma of each thing that seems to be happening in the world at the moment and going, but the world's bigger than this mm. and has always been bigger than this and will always be bigger than this. And many of us feel it so we can feel it together. We can talk. That's why I love it. And I will be reading it again and maybe again and giving it to everyone. Mari, that just seems pretty much the most perfect note to finish on. Thank you so much for your time tonight. And uh, to all of our listeners, I hope that you got something out of this. I hope you got some uh, inspiration to search for your own truth. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. (laughs) Bye.